0: Welcome to the OKC First podcast.
1: Together, we're learning to do three things.
0: Friendship with God.
1: Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com.
0: Today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 14. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest awhile, For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they all went away in a boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried thereon fo- foot from, all the, from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Be to God. Nice work. Oh, let me just echo what Tamra said. It's it's uh it's hard to sing when you're choked up. Um and I get choked up when I hear you sing. So thank you very much. And uh, if you don't mind, can you write this down on your calendar? Come to church every week <laughs> and sing. Thank you. Let me say thanks uh, here. I've, I've been out for a couple of weeks and, and thank you for the freedom to do that. It was, it was great uh, to be together. Uh, and I want to say thank you to Gary. Uh, Gary, the missionary from Zambia, he is a dear friend, and partner in ministry, and I hated to miss that day, and uh, I'm glad that you got to hear more about Zambia. You'll hear more about Zambia, and, and I, we, we believe that we will go back to Zambia at some point and take Blake with us, so yeah. And also to my pastor, uh, Steve Green. Steve in my life has been a permission giver for decades now. And even in his sermon last week, he permissioned me again uh, to be a proclaimer, proclaimer of the truth. And so I will, and, and so I will even more. I mean, you've been a great church to me. I, I don't very often pull punches, and, but Steve helped me to be even more bold, if anything. So if you are upset with that, please send your emails to steve.green. <laughs> Good to see you, Pastor. But thank you for all of that. Today, I'm going to wrap up our series in Mark called Revolutionary. I, I think it might be a good thing here at the beginning of this text to tell you what we're going to do next. We're going we're to start next week another series out of the book of Ephesians entitled Faith as a Team Sport. If it had a subtitle, it would be uh, Who We Are. I'm going to talk on a regular basis with Dr. Green about this big word, ecclesiology. The theology of us. What, what, are we, what are we supposed to be? Who are we supposed to be? And, and what are the implications for how we then live our lives day in and day out? We'll follow that five weeks up with another one. It'll sort of be a, a faith as a team sport part two, and it will be as opposed to who we are, it'll be what we do. And that will be five weeks spent trying to communicate to you and anybody else who might be listening or watching, these are the, these are the things that we are doing. So you are going to see some, some videos that tell us a little bit more about things like one about the ministry in the Cole Center, about Hope Box, about the Unity Clinic, and all those kinds of, of things, I want you to know what it is that we are doing as a reflection of our understanding of who we are, as a reflection of who we understand God to be. Now, that Who We Are series will have a historical bent to it. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it as, because, I mean, it's hard to talk about who we are without understanding who we have been and who the church has been over the years. And so, even in our music, we're going to have a trip down memory lane. I'm not going to obligate Tamara to anything, except that we're going to sing songs song from the 80s, 90s, aughts, uh, 10s, and, and yeah, 20s. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Hopefully, you'll be here for all of that. But let's talk about this uh, text now. And we'll start by talking about, you guessed it, Rotten Tomatoes. Now, Rotten Tomatoes, most of you will know that Rotten Tomatoes is a, is a, uh, it's sort of a, it's sort of an industry. What happens is people go to, these critics will go to movies or they will watch TV shows and then they will write their critiques and and they will submit these critiques and if you get less than, if your movie or TV show gets less than a 60% approval rating, you get a green splat next to your movie title or TV title. If it's better than 60% favorable, then you will get a Rotten Tomato score. And we've got a couple movies out right now that are pretty good Rotten Tomato scores. Uh, One of Jason's favorites out of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, Black Widow, has a an 80% plus score, so Jason will see it multiple times, right? (laughs) Multiple times. Rotten Tomatoes uh, is is sort of loosely based on, I think, sort of an understood tradition that people in in years past or in days gone by would go to see something on the stage or on the screen, and they would somehow come armed with Rotten Tomatoes. Why do you go to a movie with produce? I don't understand that. But they would go, and if they didn't like what they saw on the screen, they were, I guess, uh, permissioned or even obligated to throw these Rotten Tomatoes at the screen, at the screen. I'm actually all for this particular industry. I don't think there's anything wrong with being a critic and telling me whether or not the movie's good, whether it's well done. I don't have any problem with that at all. My problem is that at times I feel like we take that same sort of mindset, a critic's mindset, no matter where we go, right? I mean, you, you and I are likely to go to a restaurant, and if we hate it, we'll probably tell somebody. If we love it, we might also tell somebody. There's nothing wrong with that either. The problem is that it goes into rooms that it probably shouldn't go with us. You are perfectly welcome to say on your way home, the sermon stunk today. Can I be honest with you? Sometimes this guy does that uh, on the way home. Sometimes somebody, I won't tell you who, but sometimes Kelly tells me if the sermons uh, work or not. Um, But it's, it's a difficult thing though, Right? I mean think with me about this if if you're going to sit in the critic's seat I'm weird about this y'all I I am never going to be in favor of having a sanctuary with flip down seats the kind like you have at the theaters I'm never going to be okay with that want pews like churches have if you come into this room or if you in the arena of faith faith it's an interesting word isn't it if you understand yourself to always be sitting in the critic's seat, I don't think you can get all the way to Christ-likeness while sitting in the critic's seat. Let, let, me, let me say that again because nobody said amen. I don't think you can get all the way to Christ's likeness while sitting in the critic's seat. Amen. <laughs> and it's not just about the sermon, right? It's not about the music, right? I'm talking about when you sit in the critic's seat and you call your criticisms faith or the exercise of faith. Let me ask you this. What do we do with this faith Word. Is faith just something or some things that we memorize? That is, that is not a bad thing, but it's certainly not enough. Is faith something that we just figure out whether or not we agree or disagree with it? Not necessarily a bad thing, so long as you know who serves as the ultimate arbiter of truth and it is not you. And it is not your favorite news station. It, It is not your favorite news station. Your favorite news station, and by the way, I want, to, I want you to be equally offended if you're on the left or the right side of the political ledger here, okay? Your favorite news station cannot tell you what faith is. And all God's people said, Amen. please, heavens gracious, that was all free of charge. It can't be you. It can't be your favorite news channel. It can't be your favorite podcast host. It can't be your favorite blogger. It can't be your favorite commentator. It can't be your uncle or your aunt. It can't be your grandmother or your grandfather. It can't be your parent, your brother or sister or even your kids. It can't be any of them. And it's not that those voices have nothing to say of value. They can and they often do. But the God we see in the face of Christ, the one who is reconciling the world to himself... He is the point. So starting kind of today, but certainly as we get into the next several weeks, uh, here's what we ought to do with this word faith. To to use uh, Pauline references, to use the phrase or the word as it's used in so many of the, the Pauline books, we faith the faith. We faith the faith. And we have in the book of Mark... Examples of how to do it and then how not to do it. Does everybody know that these four books Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are understood as gospels? Does everybody know what that word gospel means? It means good news. The book that has to do the most work to fit underneath this category of good news is Mark. (laughs) Here's what I mean. We kind of believe that Mark, or there are lots of people who believe that Mark is, is sort of the eyewitness testimony of Simon Peter, eyewitness testimony of, of Simon Peter. But if you're carrying a, a hardbound book today, if you're carrying a, a tangible Bible today, and God bless you if you are, if you were to look, chances are your Bible will say something like this right around Mark chapter 16, verse 8. It will say, earliest reliable manuscripts stop here stop here. Now, after that, you have this wonderful story of the ramifications of the resurrection. But the earliest reliable manuscripts stop at verse 8, which says something like this, and we're going to circle back to it. The disciples, sure, there was an empty tomb, but they were terrified, and they did not do what Jesus said. They did not go to meet Jesus in Galilee. They did not. That might be what Luke is saying, but Mark is saying they failed. In fact, If you allow that to be the ending point, then the book of Mark has a lot to do with what not to do where followership is concerned, where discipleship is concerned. The disciples weren't always good at faithing the faith. The book of Mark in today's passage is probably the best example. The book of Mark details for us the failures of the disciples, even when in the presence of Jesus. And there are a couple of things we can take away from that. First, I want us to say, whew, okay, if the disciples can fail, there is some chance that we can too. (laughs) Second, I want us to hear, given the resources that we have in this resurrected Jesus, We are called to do better than the disciples did here. They failed in so many different ways. Again, maybe that's the point of the book of Mark. Failure to fully recognize that the kingdom was at hand. The failure to fully recognize who you were looking at when you were looking into the face of Christ. Now, it wasn't always that way. Back in in the earlier part of chapter 6, Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. Listen to this. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they all did this Jesus thing because... because. Jesus is always seeking deputies, helpers, people to be involved in the process of renewing and restoring all of creation. Jesus needs not spectators who become critics, but participants who start as apprentices. This is, this is the harshest thing I'll say, so just buckle up for this and it gets better from here, okay? Okay. If the sum total of your Christian faith commitment is that you feel like you can so fully articulate the beliefs of your tradition, the beliefs of our tradition, the beliefs as we think we see them embodied in Christ, if the sum total of your faith is that you can articulate those things and then differentiate, differentiate yourselves from those who cannot do that thing, if that's all you do and if that's all you're calling faith, you're not a Christian yet. But John, I post such compelling things on my Instagram stories. But John, have you not seen the firestorms I create on the Facebooks? Man, the world needs fewer Facebook Christians and more real Christians. I'm worried about you if you have time to fight on Facebook. I really am. I'm worried about you if you have time to fight on, on Instagram. I, I'm worried about you if you post too much on anything, because my suspicion is there's a real chance that you're sitting in the spectator seat and not tagging along with Jesus as an apprentice. Because what Jesus needs, because the needs are great out there, what Jesus needs are apprentices. Apprentices. And they got it periodically, they got it. They successfully went out and did all of these things. And because they did all of these things, they were a part of the process whereby people were starting to look up and see that, sure enough, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. The disciples were helping to heal and restore and revive. And when they did, at times, they took on the same status in the eyes of the public that Jesus did. And here's the thing Jesus was okay with that. Watch the pronouns here. Skip down to verse 30, the verses that Miles read for us today. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Jesus, you will not believe. What you permissioned us to do, you will not believe. Now listen to this. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. Jesus knows how hard this work is. Folks, the the work of liberation and abolition is hard work. It's probably the reason a lot more people don't do it. It is hard work. And when you have done that work for any length of time, you need to sit down for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Verse 32, and they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. The disciples had taken their rightful places, accomplices in the mischievous work of the kingdom. And everybody knew it. And everybody was paying attention. Everybody wanted a little bit of what Jesus and the disciples had to offer. And then things take a turn. Verse 34. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now, man. I love this about Jesus. I want it to be true of John more and more often. I want it to be true of us as the body more and more often. When we see needs, we feel it. We feel it. This terminology here, this terminology here, and he had compassion for them. The word there, Dr. Green, as you helped us so many times, is splankna. In other words, Jesus felt it in his guts. In his bowels, he felt it. He saw the needs. He saw the hurt. People, people, you do know that people still hurt out there, right? One of the marks of the Christian is whether or not you care that somebody else hurts. Even your enemies. He had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I really wanted the entirety of Psalm 23 to be read today. Because, because. I want us to be keenly aware that this God seeks to be the perfect kind of shepherd for us because this perfect kind of shepherd recognizes that we have needs, all kinds of needs, all kinds of needs. And, and, it is the expectation of this good shepherd that we would help shepherd. It is the expectation of this good shepherd that we too would feel this in our guts compassion, ache, belly ache for the people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus did what Jesus does when he sees people in need. Jesus helps, and in this moment, he helps by teaching. Folks, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. Here's what life is, and I recognize that for you, but here's what life could be because the kingdom is at hand. Now, the disciples, having had such a great first half of the chapter, <laughs> now start to wander. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, I think that's enough, Jesus. This is a deserted place and the hours very late now. Jesus, do the right thing. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus said, Wait a minute, you guys are like deputy helpers apprentices, right? You give them something to eat. You've been doing miraculous things out there. I I permissioned you and resourced you to do miraculous things out there, said Jesus. You guys, yeah, we have a food problem. Fix it. They lack imagination. And they said, All right, Jesus. Are we going to go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Is that that what we're going to do? Jesus said to them, all right, then what do we have? And I love this. How many loaves have you, he says? Go and see. So they went out, and as you know, they find five loaves and two fish. Jesus now has taken matters into his own hand because the disciples are unable to. They're unable to help in the ways that they helped just at the beginning of the chapter. He ordered them to sit down, groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and see if this sounds familiar. He had already taken them. Now he blesses them. He breaks them and he gives them. To his disciples to set before the people and he divided them. The two fish among them all, everybody ate and was filled. There were 12 baskets left. Each of the disciples got to take home this huge doggy basket. <laughs> but by this time, Jesus is wounded by their inattentiveness. By this time, there's great evidence that Jesus is wounded by their amnesia. By their chronically human and normal capacity to get it in the first few verses of this chapter, only to lose it at the end of the same chapter. So Jesus says, y'all get in the boat and go. I gotta go pray. (laughs) Now, they get in the boat, they go across, Jesus looks up, there's one of those storms, those characteristic storms, and the disciples are struggling mightily And so Jesus, having already broken, having already done this, this huge miracle in front of them, that you would think that the disciples would take to heart, but they didn't. Jesus now goes walking to them on the water. Now, when they saw him, verse 49, walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately, there's that word again, he spoke to them and said, relax, look at my face, this is me. You don't have to be afraid right now because I'm me and I'm here. Then he got into the boat and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Now look at this, this is verse 52. This just jumps off the page at me. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. How in the world do people who are walking day after day after day with Jesus, how do they end up with hard hearts? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, but I see it sometimes in the mirror. How do people who are eyewitnesses up close, close enough to see the miraculous things that happen, How is it that that same person or these same people, and perhaps I'm talking about you now, how is it that we can go from mountaintop experiences where we sing really well on Sunday only to be in despair throughout the week? How is it? I don't know. I I do think this. I think participants and apprentices are more likely and more prone to be critics to be spectators, to stand back and ask Jesus, what are you going to do now? And not ask the question, how can I be involved? I do think those people, spectators, are more likely to have hardened hearts than participants. Let me say that again. Where faith is concerned, I think spectators are more likely to have hardened hearts than participants. In fact, struggling with faith, get involved. It may seem counterintuitive to you, but there are some things that can't be known just mentally. Imagine someone, I got golfers in the room, imagine someone who said, I am going to become an expert on golf. Oh, really? How are you going to become an expert on golf? I am going to memorize books about golf. So by the time I get out there, I will be a golf savant. Now, you actually don't have clubs. doesn't matter. I've read the books. I know what to think. You probably ought to get out on the course, don't you think? I don't know. It's pretty good books. I'm willing to fight you on the ideas about golf. Because I'm holding them so tightly, Stephen. I mean, I know everything I need to know about golf because I've read the right books about it and I'm ready to fight and post about it on Facebook. Amen. Now, you and I know that person doesn't become a golfer until they golf. I suspect Christianity is a lot like that. A lot. I am way more interested in the opinions of participants than I am in the opinions of spectators. The disciples moved pretty quickly. In the space of one chapter, they moved pretty quickly from full participants to spectators. And as a result, their hearts were hardened. So they get on the other side, And when they got out of the boat, people at once recognized, not them, but him, and rushed about that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats or to wherever they heard that he was, not where they were. And wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and they begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed, and there is again great evidence that this was said and articulated just this way to demonstrate, yes, the grandeur, the beauty, the power of Christ, but also the ineptitude of the disciples who just earlier in the chapter were helping do these exact same things. But maybe because they were tired, maybe because they were disappointed, maybe because I don't know what it was. They left the realm of apprenticeship and moved into the realm of critical spectatorship and they failed. And so Mark 16:8 says this, says this. This is just after the announcement, the rumor of the resurrection. So they went out and fled, the disciples fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them and they said nothing. To anyone, for they were afraid. On to the book of Luke. N.T. Wright says this about these disciples, about the plight of these disciples. He says to grasp all of this that's going on and to grasp all of this, we will need more than just a suspension of disbelief as though when we're in the theater. There it is again for the evening. It will, take, it will take a complete change of heart. And that's what Jesus has come to bring to you, to them, the disciples, but to you, to me, is the opportunity for a complete change of heart that allows us to participate in ways that spectators can never I used a term earlier, abolition. Can I tell you that when I grow up, I want to be an abolitionist? In fact, now I'm not going to do this. Nobody get nervous. But if given an opportunity to change the name of the church, who would ever do that? I would never do such a thing. I might give us a subtitle, right? OKC First Church of the Nazarene, a liberation community. Oh, I love that. Liberation community, and then we could say, Doctor Green, what we've always wanted to say. What we're doing here with our children's ministry, with our youth ministry. By the way, our teens are on our high school kids are on a retreat, so we can all kind of just say hi to them. Hello, I hope Drew's still awake. Hello, glad you're all out there. We miss you, miss you down here. But I should let you know, teens and parents and kids and parents. Here's what we're trying to do with your kids, whether we're subtitled or not. We're trying to make abolitionists out of all of them. Does everybody know what an abolitionist does? An abolitionist liberates. Prior to that, an abolitionist feels in his or her guts when they see people in captivity of any kind. And so here, yes, we want everybody to be well-behaved, to not use foul language. (laughs) More importantly... We want people to have eyes for captivity in all its forms and hearts for liberation in all its forms. And so abolitionists capture my attention. One of my favorites is a guy by the name of William Wilberforce, a member of the British Parliament. Bluff these stories. And also the nephew of one of John Newton's friends. Now, John Newton may or may not be familiar to you, but John Newton was a slave trader who suffered a near-death experience. And in the aftermath of that near-death experience, he said, like you do in a near-death, near-death experience, God, I'll do whatever I want you want me to do. And it seems that God said, well, I want you to stop trading people. And so he stopped and started studying theology And writing songs, by the way. Studying theology until finally felt like he was prepared for ministry and for, it looks like, a very brief time he may have had some sort of pastoral influence on a young politician by the name of William Wilberforce. Now, there's also evidence that he looked at Wilberforce and saw just a cheapo politician. But Wilberforce asked him, what should I do with my life? What do you think John Newton said? John Newton said, end slavery. Spend your life being an abolitionist. Spend yourself serving other people. Find a way to feel it here when you see captivity of any kind. And spend yourself trying to change it, no matter how big the structure is. End, said John Newton to Wilberforce, end this captivity known as slavery. Wilberforce took this to heart. And there's some evidence that he took to heart a song that John Newton wrote as he continued to heal and recover from his life of tragedy, tragic harm. A song that you and I know It's called Amazing Grace. I am not sure if the scene I'm about to show you actually happened But I do think it carries a great deal of truth. Take a look. Wilberforce, and that's John Newton. Something of a singer. I do remember. So I think I'm going to go and sing them a song. On night night. Night. Shall... Sound like a chorus of bloody Tomcat. Now, let me introduce you to somebody who does it properly.
0: <laughs> I would like to dedicate this song to my honourable friend, His Grace, the Duke of Clarence.
1: <laughs>
0: it was written by my old preacher, he was captain of a slave ship for 20 years. He repented his sins, and then he wrote this song. Amazing grace, how Time for the heart for the murder point. <laughs> <laughs> Saints for the arch government. How sweet ah, the sound yeah.
1: In 1789, Wilberforce finally introduced a bill for the abolition of slavery in Parliament and it passed. He submitted it in 89. It passed and was signed into law in 1807. 18 years worth of work that cannot be done from the sidelines. That cannot be done from the spectator's seat. Friends, get out of the spectator's seat. There is captivity in a variety of forms around you. It can be as close as the person sitting next to you. It might be a family member, a co-worker, again, an enemy, an opposite, an irritant. There is captivity around you. And here's what I know for sure that sometimes the disciples forgot you are called to that captivity as an abolitionist. And you have everything you need to succeed. You have the calling, and you have the resources. Taken, blessed, broken, and given. Everybody's aware now, right? Hopefully, this is not a secret anymore. Taken, blessed, broken, given does not apply just to the bread. <laughs> right, John, we understand that also to be Jesus. Yes, that is also true. Very, very smart. And as it is true of Christ, it is also true of the members of the body of Christ. What if you understood yourself to be taken, blessed, Broken, given. Of all the titles or descriptors I could have, I think I most want to be remembered as an abolitionist. I I want that for you too. But hear me, I can't and you can't do the work of abolition from the seat of the critic or the consumer. You actually have to step into the real life drama of all of it. (laughs) And it is time for you to get in. It's time for me to get in. Weekly, we are reminded around this table, the work that we've been given to do, we are bread for the world, and we're reminded around the same table that we have all that we need to take our places as the called out and sent out people of God. You're going to be more Christian and I will be too if we can do a little less criticizing and a little bit more apprenticing. So whatever your level of criticizing and whatever your level of apprenticing what? Apprenticing? <laughs> do less criticizing and more apprenticing and you will discover the energy of the abolitionist. Hopefully everybody got communion elements on your way in. If you didn't, there are people around the room right now who are ready. If you'll just lift your hand, we'll make sure that you get the necessary nourishment for the abolitionist. So just raise your hand and we'll make sure that you have what you need. Anybody else need This. Anybody else know that you need this (laughs) and don't have it yet? Ah, it's perfect, Dr. Rieger. It's perfect. Let me say this again before I enter into the ritual here. You and I, we are called to be abolitionists, called to be. And we have everything we need to be abolitionists in the smallest of ways, in the biggest of ways, ways that take, I don't know, 15 minutes, ways that may take 18 years. I know this. People are starting to wonder whether or not it makes any sense to gather as the church. Add my voice to the side of that conversation that says this. It does not make sense to come simply (laughs) to criticize and be spectators. That doesn't make any sense. Now, if we gather and we encourage one another to see captivity in all its forms and to understand the God of liberation so that we can then be a reflection of the God of liberation. Now, that makes sense. Heavenly Father, bless these elements. And with them, God, make abolitionists out of all of us. Nourish our imaginations so that we can recognize captivity in all its forms, no matter how close or far away it is from us in a given moment. Nourish our imaginations and our wills and our bodies so that we can then set about the hard work of abolition. Remind us, God, that it is only because of your calling and then because of the gifts of your resources. It's only because of that that we have the capacity for abolition work. So with this little piece of bread, with this little sip of juice, God, remind us that we too, like you, are becoming the bread taken blessed Broken and given, it was on the night he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He held it up before them, he blessed it, and he broke it, saying, "This is my body, now broken for you. And every time you eat of it, including today, remember me." So now, church and fellow abolitionists in the making, take and break and eat. The same way, he took the cup, held it up before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, including today, remember me. So now, church, take and drink. Heavenly Father, we confess that we can be a lot like these disciples Who can in one moment be deeply convinced of your presence, of your power, of the trajectory that we should take, and by the end of the day, perhaps be less convinced of your presence, your power, in our direction? We have it within us, God, to be intimidated again by the wind and the waves, maybe intoxicated at some level by delusions of power and control and the need to win. God, heal us from both intoxication and intimidation and build within us this deep desire and capacity, capacity to recognize captivity in all its forms. I would like to invite each of us now to pray a very similar and yet personal prayer of confession. God, move me from the spectator seat and into the posture of the apprentice. may the almighty God have mercy on all of us forgive us our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the spirit keep us in eternal and boundless life Jason
0: would you just stay in these sweet moments of prayer as we gather together in prayer of intercession. Would you join with me as I pray for some of the folks in the life of our church? Jesus, we gather in these moments, and God, we ask that you would take care of and love and heal some of the folks that we love so much. God, we ask that you would surround J.R. Emmerich as he continues to recover from his hip replacement surgery. Clara Johnson, who's here today, she recovers from a surgery she had earlier this week. God, we ask that you would surround Angela Adams and be with her as she continues to recover from her bone marrow transplant surgery. God, would you heal her of the cancer that she has? God, we ask that you would come alongside of Dennis Bratcher and be with him, God, and heal him from cancer. God, we ask that you would surround James Shea and be with him as he finds out this week the results of a difficult biopsy he had earlier this week. There's no doubt, church, you've walked into this facility knowing someone who needs a healing touch from God. And whoever God is putting in your mind's eye right now, would you pray for them as Mark Place? God, we ask that you would continue to be with Gerald and Frida Human, Frida as she's returned home from a very long hospital stay. Would you surround them with your love and with your presence? God, would you be with Teresa Veach and surround her as she continues to recover from an accident with her car? God, we ask that you would be with all who need you the most. And God, we think about those like Pastor John has preached anyone who is in any sort of form of captivity. And whoever God is putting in your mind's eye right now, whatever picture that is, would you pray for them as well? In light of that, God, we pray for those who are in literal captivity, who are incarcerated, those we know and those who we do not know. God, your surrounding presence and amazing grace would be with them today. God, we ask that you would be with the lonely and with the alone. God, in these moments as we pray, we want to ask that, God, you would reach all of our children who are at Kids Camp right now with Pastor Lisa and all the support and friends and sponsors she's gathered around her. God, I thank you for the kids who were there and ask God that through Lisa and through worship and being together in the preaching moment, that you would reach and touch our kids and those who've surrounded them in love. And you would be with the second set of kids, many of whom are in here on Kids Sunday, awaiting to go back to camp for themselves on Tuesday as we have a second round this upcoming week. God, would you be with those sponsors and those children? God, we ask that you would be right now with our kids down in the Beaver Spin Broken Bow area with Pastor Zach and Pastor Avarilla. God, would you in these moments as they, I believe, are preparing kids to hand out for those who are homeless and watching the service that is there praying along with us, God, we ask that you would surround them with your love, your compassion, your grace, and that, God, you'd be with Pastor Avarilla Pastor Zach as they communicate that grace and love to our teens. God, we ask that you would come alongside of this neighborhood, with our neighborhood empowered, the Cole Community Center, and some of the churches that make up the family of faith that we call OKC First Church, like our friends with Impact Community Church. God, we ask that you would allow us as a people to be for all those who are around us. God, we also ask that you would, through a prayer you taught your disciples to pray, to continue to transform us into people who are abolitionists and participants and not merely spectators. And so, God, transform us by your love through this prayer today. Church, let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.